Hi there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another uh, examination of aquariums from our little unique perspective. I just wanted to, first of all, take a moment once again to thank everybody for the many, many um, kind words, um, the feedback, the the participation in this podcast, and just the, the amount of support and encouragement we've received for doing this. This has been so much fun for me as someone who's never really ventured outside of just writing before and, and of course, presenting um, at clubs and conferences. This is just a, a really nice evolution, and I, I'm really happy that so many of you appreciate being able to uh, to get the tint uh, in a format that's uh, easier for you to consume on your own terms. So thanks again for, uh, for all the suggestions and, and support. Now, today, I want to talk about something that's You've probably seen me writing and discussing this quite a bit, but I kind of want to bring it all together and kind of give you a little more uh, inspiration once again, go just a little bit deeper, um, as deep as we can in the in a podcast, on the aspect of seasons. Uh, as you've likely figured out by now, I have this obsession with replicating the form and the function of nature to the greatest extent possible. And of course, the function part is often more of a challenge than the form, Right. So any processes found in nature that we can replicate to some extent not previously executed in an aquarium is like an evolution of sorts in our process. It's a real win for the hobby. And again, perhaps one of the more obvious yet less you know, tackled aspects of nature that we work on is change. Yeah, if there's one constant in nature, it's changed. And it's kind of ironic to me that one of the things that we typically strive to avoid in fish keeping is change. Well, rapid environmental changes anyway. Yet we're typically sort of modeling our aquariums after natural habitats, many of which do undergo significant periodic or even seasonal changes during the course of a year, right? Yet, although we're replicating some cool natural habitats as we never have before, we don't usually vary the environmental conditions throughout the year in our aquariums. In fact, when you think about it, they're almost static in terms of these seasonal changes, right? And why is this? I suppose it's another case of we do it this way because that's how we've done it for a century. Not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also sort of the self-limiting in, in some extents. And I think, uh, to some extent, and I think perhaps it's time to loose the chains of conventional aquarium practice, whatever that is, and look towards some largely unexplored ideas, right? Now, could there be something to be gained by modeling our aquariums after you know, the natural habitats during different times of the year? You know, some benefits for our fishes and the other organisms that we want to nurture in our tanks? I think so. I really do. Seasonal change is hugely impactful, particularly in tropical regions where most of our fishes that we play with in the hobby come from. Its influence at every single level is really significant, and even the larger lakes undergo significant seasonal changes. For example, Lake Tanganyika, which is the second deepest lake in the world, it actually undergoes surface water temperature changes throughout the year in its upper layers. Now, surely these must have some impact on the distribution, the spawning, and the feeding habits of the fishes that live there, right? I think so. In Amazonia, as we've discussed many times here before, uh, the water uh, water levels and, and temperatures are also influenced by seasonal change. Floodplain lakes associated with the rivers also undergo these big seasonal changes, and that affects the water quality. At a higher water phase, the large amount of nutrient input from the terrestrial environment causes the increase of what they call primary productivity in science, and this can lead to lakes becoming very eutrophic. And this also has an impact on the fishes which live there, of course. 
And of course, we all know about the annual killifishes of Africa and South America, which have adapted over eons to these varying seasonal conditions of rainfall and desiccation, these cycles. They typically inhabit slowly evaporating pools, puddles, and wetlands that dry out and fill again during the rainy season, whenever that may be. And these are highly variable, yet very dynamic systems, which both give life and death to the fishes and other aquatic life forms that reside in them. As hobbyists, I'd hazard guess that we unconsciously tend to model our aquariums after one season in the wild habitats, if we even consider seasons at all, and not really taking into account the significant changes that occur in these environments during different times of the year. If you look at it from a literal perspective, not taking into account the hobbyists who work with annual killifishes, for most of us, it's sort of always the wet season in our aquariums, right? Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with this approach. After all, we're into keeping fishes, not creating, you know, replications of dry forest floors or empty mud holes. Well, maybe not just yet, and we should. I just think it would be kind of cool to model our aquariums after typical environments as they look and function at different times of the year. We've already touched on, you know, the flooded Igapo forests of Brazil in which the forest floor becomes seasonally inundated by these overflowing streams and rivers. It's an amazingly dynamic habitat that I'm glad we're starting to see more interest in. I'm absolutely obsessed with these habitats and I know you guys are probably sick of hearing me talk about it. But with all that's going on down in Amazonia right now with forest deforestation and, uh, you know, the burning of, of the forests in general, this is going to have a significant impact on our planet. Something like 20% of the oxygen produced in our planet comes from that area. And when you start taking those forests away, you not only damage their ability to produce oxygen, but you damage the ecosystem itself, the fishes which live there and are dependent upon these seasonal changes for their life. So there's a lot to it. Obviously, I'm not going to get into it more. I'm not not the greatest uh, climate science uh, person in the world as far as my understanding, but it doesn't take a genius to realize that there's something going on down there that we need to be aware of. And just playing with this stuff in our aquariums is just yet another way we can get an appreciation for these habitats. Now, again, having played with these systems, I'm constantly fascinated by what I learned. Yet, <clears throat> I've wondered for years how interesting it would be to take it even further and create an aquarium around the seasonal changes in, in this habitat. You know, more shallow water levels, a greater ratio of, you know, substrate or botanicals to water and different temperatures, different lighting, etc., etc. Now, that was the basis of my so-called urban igapo idea. You know, starting out with a dry terrestrial habitat and gradually flooding it to simulate the seasonal inundations that um, these habitats go through every year. I've done this several times now, sort of nuancing various aspects like the soil composition, the planting, fish stocking, all this stuff along the way. It's become one of my favorite little pet projects, and I hope to see more of you playing with this idea. I think it's something that we can all learn from. And to that end, I, you know, I worked on various soil recipes for both the agapo and the varzea habitats, which operate similarly, yet have distinctly different physical attributes and characteristics. And these become quite obvious when you begin playing with the more functional environmental replications of them, too. That's another aspect of playing with aquariums. You can see subtle differences. Uh, playing with aquariums, I'm sorry, that would that replicate aspects, dynamic aspects of natural habitats, so that you get to see these subtle differences. I mean, think about, you know, the many, many habitats around the world that are suitable for these types of simulations. What about a vernal pool in Africa that houses annual killifish? 
Uh, could lowering the water levels significantly at various times of the year perhaps trigger specific behaviors related to the onset of the dry season? We already have a pretty good handle on the spawning of these annual fishes like Nothobranchius and so forth and how the uh, CO2 and such affects the egg viability and development and the hatching times, a concept known as diapause, sort of a suspended animation kind of thing, very interesting stuff. But I wonder if we can gain even more insight into the fishes themselves by gradually decreasing water levels to simulate the seasonal change, or perhaps even changing the food sources to simulate the various you know, resources that are available during different seasons. What would we gain? What could we learn? What additional things could we trigger in these fishes? It's certainly worth looking into, isn't it? And I think there's many fishes which could benefit from these types of replications. You know, if you recall not too long ago, we talked about the zebra danio and how it adapts to changing conditions in its native habitats. Now, typically, you don't think about these fishes as ones that come from very dynamic habitats. If you really think about zebra danios, if you do at all, most people just see them as a little schooling fish that comes from, oh, the rice paddies or, or whatever. And that sells them short. Now, you know, these fishes are found in northern India, which is an area that's subject to seasonal rainfall between the months of June and September, I believe, due to the summer monsoons. And the water levels and the characteristics do vary considerably at different times of the year. And they're often found in, you know, the aforementioned inundated rice paddies and then these marginal pools with a silty kind of turbid water with very little movement, which might surprise you. Um, during the dry times of the year, they spend their time in more calm or shaded areas of streams with rockier substrates. Now, how interesting would it be to give them monsoonal conditions versus the conditions more typical of the dry season that we tend to provide them with in our aquariums? In other words, how about a more turbid, silty environment that replicates that time of year? What unlocks could we learn? What things can we find out about this fish that we've kept for more than a century now that maybe we don't know? I find examining these seasonal changes and the natural habitats and the way they affect our fish is just irresistible. There's something really alluring about, you know, perhaps gaining some small insights into how these environmental changes that occur throughout the year affect our fishes. I mean, there's so much more to it than simply raising and lowering the water levels or the water temperature. Those are good places to start. What kind of secrets could we unlock about our fishes by manipulating these factors like, you know, turbidity, water movement, substrate or botanical additions or subtractions, varying the light intensity and duration, the temperature, which we've already done to some extent, the pH, and even the food supply. Now, there's a lot of great scholarly data out there on almost any tropical environment you can imagine. And with the concern over climate change, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of scientific information analyzing seasonal variations in all sorts of aquatic habitats worldwide. It's literally out there for the bold, motivated hobbyists to apply to our aquarium work. The passing of seasons and the varying environmental conditions they create are really fascinating opportunity for us as hobbyists to examine and learn more about how our fishes interact with their environments and how we might be able to create even more successful outcomes for a wider variety of fishes. Perhaps we can get some movement with fishes that have been typically elusive or difficult to spawn for us using the more traditional approaches, right? Now, an example of this might be brackish water fishes. I've been working with brackish habitats for a while now. I haven't really done a ton with fishes in terms of trying to spawn anything. I've just been trying to work with the environments. And although I've played around quite a bit with the the water and the substrate composition, as I've shared with you over the years, I have yet to fully examine the idea of tidal influences. 
more frequent changes to the habitat, something that has not been worked with very much in home aquariums in the past. I think that there might be much to gain from replicating these fluctuations in the aquarium. Mangroves are really fascinating trees. They've adapted to these tidal fluctuations, water chemistry and temperature changes, lighting changes. They're adaptable, they're resilient, and they're actually pretty easy to grow in captive systems, which makes them a perfect subject for this kind of, kind of work, right? The impact of tidal changes, lighting, and substrate composition are all dynamics that we can and should study more in the context of our aquariums. These amazing trees are known to foster and support this huge variety of flora and fauna, a really dynamic ecosystem which creates a significant food chain for the fishes and other organisms that live in these mangrove habitats. They're called mangles. Now we can certainly make a greater effort to recreate this food chain and the benefit in our aquariums, can't we? It's worth a shot. I mean, what secrets could we unlock by playing with some of these ideas? There's so much more than a cool look, trust me. Uh, the prop root systems alone and uh, their adaptations to the various substrates and the animals that live among them could prove uh, a, a fun place to play for years. So you could, de you know, designate tank after tank to studying this stuff and probably have some really amazing breakthroughs and discoveries that you'll be able to share with the world. You just have to make the decision to study it a little bit more. It's amazing stuff that we can unlock simply by looking at things just a little bit differently in our aquarium. And that's how we've always progressed in the aquariums. I mean, now sure, we've already do play right now with some environmental conditions, you know, manipulations of environmental conditions, I should say, uh, in order to induce spawning in our fishes. It's very well documented. Things like, you know, temperature changes and perhaps lighting changes. We've seen this with Corydoras catfish. That's been that's a trick that's been done for a long time. And I think even with tetras over the years, you know, change, sudden changes to water conditions or whatever. Um, whether it was a conscious effort or not, it is sort of you know, replicating these seasonal changes that take place in the habitats. And those often trigger spawning behaviors. And I, you know, wonder what other types of seasonal conditions we can do to see what other types of impacts we can influence, you know, greater growth rate, coloration, appetite, etc. Not just spawning, but life cycle and lifestyle adaptations that our fishes make. I mean, with all this amazing curiosity and talent and downright awesome creativity we have in our sort of little growing global community of adventurous aquarists, that's you, there's a ton of room for amazing work and probably even some breakthroughs. Now, I realize this is just a small cursory thing that we're talking about here. I can't go into huge depth on, on every idea, but I hope I've piqued the interest of at least a few of you into taking a sort of different look at the way we plan, develop, and manage our aquariums. Not that taking such an approach will guarantee groundbreaking results that are sure to change the way we keep fishes forever. I mean, it might, but it might just stimulate more ideas, more discussions, and facilitate that connecting of the dots process of weaving together what we already know with what we haven't yet tried. Simply influencing other hobbyists to look just beyond the aesthetics and to consider how the natural ecosystems that we tend to replicate uh, are actually function and that these functions can be replicated with greater detail if we apply that same detail and zeal to this stuff that we do to the, you know, finding the right rock or the, 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 the right combination of plants or hitting the golden ratio for that contest. I had to get that dig in there, sorry. You know? Understanding these natural processes and replicating more and more of them in our aquariums can expose more and more people, even non-hobbyists, to the wonder and the fragility of these amazing aquatic ecosystems. And that in turn will foster a greater demand to protect them. I really believe that. Isn't that an amazing time to be an aquarist, isn't it? I mean, we can do a lot by just doing what we love. 
I mean, we have the fishes, we have the technology, we have the materials, and we have the means to research these arcane topics that were once considering the sole domain of academics. And now we can execute on many of these things. We can try playing with concepts that we've likely never even given much thought to before. We can rapidly communicate and share our successes, our challenges, our failures, and overall progress with fellow hobbyists all over the planet. Nature's calling. This is how quantum shifts occur in our hobby. It's how significant evolutions in the understanding and executing of long-held practices take place. Yeah, those passing fancies that we talk about might just create some entirely new paradigms for our hobby. Let's hope. We need to just jump in and get our hands wet. Change is everywhere. Change is constant. And change is fascinating. Change is opportunity. Stay studious. Stay excited. Stay resourceful. Stay creative. Stay adventurous. And always stay wet. Till next time, this is Scott Feldman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to hearing... uh, your suggestions, your thoughts on this topic, and seeing the work that you're doing in this area. There's so much for everybody to do. It's going to be a lot of fun over the next few years, and I'm going to keep pushing and pushing you guys to do something with this. So thanks again for supporting our uh, our podcast, and I look forward to seeing you again on the next installment of The Tint. Bye now.